It seems like we've been in Matthew 12 a long time, doesn't it? Maybe we have. Well, tonight we're going to make an effort to finish uh, the chapter. When we left off last week, we were kind of right in the middle of a conversation between uh, Jesus and the Pharisees, and I want to just kind of bring you up to speed on it. I'm going to give you a quick review. Uh, Last week, we saw a demon-possessed man uh, being brought to Jesus, and it wasn't just your ordinary, everyday, run-of-the-mill demon-possessed guy. This one was a little special uh, in the sense that he could not see and he could not speak. He was both blind and he was both mute. And we talked about how the religious leaders of that day, to them, it was, this was the hardest demon to cast out, if, if at all, if it was even possible. They believed that in order to cast out this demon, or any demon for that matter, you must somehow get the demon to say his name through the voice of the one in which he's possessing. Then they would have the power over him to cast him out. Well, this guy couldn't speak. Whether it was a result of the demon or whether it was a result of a physical illness, whatever the case is, he couldn't speak. So before them stood what, to be, what looked like an impossible case. This demon-possessed man, he had no hope. He had no future. There was nothing for him. Nobody could help him. Now we're not told how. We're not told what Jesus said. But what we are told is that when this man is brought before Jesus, the demon is cast out. Immediately momentarily goodbye see you later not allowed here anymore that's it you're gone no problems at all no fight back just a strict obedience to the lord jesus christ when the people saw it they were amazed it says and they began to ask a question they said could this be the son of david is this the messiah could the messiah really be in our presence well standing nearby watching the whole thing were the pharisees well they were the religious leaders of the day And they were unable to deny that the miracle had taken place because it happened before their very eyes. So instead, they ascribed the miracle, they assigned the miracle, the power from the miracle. They said it came from Satan. Or they said Beelzebub. Jesus cast out demons by Beelzebub. They began to tell the people that very thing. This man, he casts out demons by Beelzebub. Do you realize they said it was the power of Satan that set this man free? That was the logic they were implying. Jesus, the scripture tells us, he knew their thoughts. That's a scary thing in itself, isn't it? He knew what they were thinking before they said it. He knew what they were whispering across the room. He knew their thoughts because they hadn't made this accusation to him directly. They were whispering under their breath. Somehow mothers and teachers have that same ability. They can know it from their kids and what's being said. They just know it's happening. They know, what it's, they know what's going on. Well, Jesus knew what was taking place. And he basically says to them, if I can sum it up, he says, your your accusation is absurd. Your logic doesn't work. Satan did not just set this man free. And he goes on to explain to him why. He says, kingdoms and houses that are divided, they can't stand. There's no unity there. So why would Satan be divided against himself? What sense would that make? The answer is he wouldn't. But then he goes on a little further, and and if I can summarize, he says, but let's say that I do cast out demons by Satan. Then who do your sons cast out demons by? Who do your followers cast out demons by? The ones that you can get to speak, that you cast out, and and whether they could or not, we're not sure of, but those, who, who were they using? Because they couldn't cast out the one I cast out, but I just cast them out, so my power must be greater than your power, but you just said my power is Satan, so let's go get your sons and find out who's got the real power. I'm going to repeat that, I can't. But you get the logic behind it. They're saying, Jesus saying, well, who, who, who are you using? Because who you're using wasn't able to do this because you couldn't get him to say his name. Therefore, I did it in a moment, obviously. 
Obviously, my power that I'm using would be greater than your power, if that's true. If that's true, if I am casting out demons by a greater power, which he was, we, taught, we learned who, well, the power that he was using, it was the Spirit of God. He was using the Holy Spirit. If that's the case, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, that means the kingdom of God has surely come upon you. He told the Pharisees that. You decide. You take your logic. What do you think about this? And then Jesus says to them, basically, he says, all right, let me put it another way for you. Let me explain it to you in a different light. Nobody goes into a strong man's house and steals what the strong man has unless they can bind or tie up the strong man, right? Nobody, you understand that, guys. That's what he's saying. You understand, if, you're, if you have a house, I'm not able to come in and take your stuff unless I'm stronger than you. That makes sense, right? So whatever this demon was, I'm stronger than he was because I kicked him out of what was his house. He makes that logic, that argument there very plain. I'm stronger than Satan. Do you believe now, I think he would say? And immediately following this exchange, Jesus went on to teach them about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's kind of ironic that that's where that, we've all heard of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but we studied it last week. That's, it's in this section of scripture right here. He's talking about it, and the importance is this. You see, the Pharisees, they had heard and seen a lot of Jesus' power, a lot of the, the power of the Holy Spirit. They've seen it manifested through him. The Pharisees had heard Jesus teach. They'd rejected his wisdom. They'd seen his miracles, and they had sat back, and they've watched in denial and indifferent to all that he was doing. They were at Jesus' baptism, and quite possibly heard the voice from heaven say, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And they refused to listen to heaven's testimony. They had read the Father's endorsements on the pages of the Old Testament, yet they still denied him. They read the scriptures. The Pharisees had rejected the Son, and they had rejected the Father, and there was only one voice left that would give testimony. It was the testimony of the Holy Spirit that was ministering to them. The Holy Spirit would testify of Jesus through the works and the miracles that he had performed in their very presence. It teaches us something. It teaches us that you can reject the Father's witness, and there's still the Son. You can reject Jesus' witness, and there's still the Holy Spirit's testimony. But once you reject the Holy Spirit's testimony, once you reject the, Spirit, the witness of the Holy Spirit, there's no hope. Heaven's already testified all they can, and now it will grow silent. There's nothing left to say. It's all been performed. Now, as we come to our passage this, this evening, Jesus is continuing this conversation with them. It's a continuation of what we just reviewed, as he's going to make his point rather loud and clear. He's going to call the Pharisees to make a decision about who he is based on the works that they've witnessed him perform. You've seen me do the works. Now I want you to decide who I am. Look at verse 33 with me, if you will. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will 
be condemned. Wow. In verse 33, Jesus' first comment about the tree and its fruit. It demonstrates the choice that Pharisees had in the situation. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or either make the tree bad and its fruit bad. You say, what are they talking about? I don't understand that tree stuff. Jesus is referring to himself. He's the tree. His works, his miracles, that's the fruit. In other words, they're saying his works were good, but they were being done by Satan. He said, you can't have a a bad tree bears good fruit. It doesn't work that way. A good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. Essentially, what he's saying is, you need to make up your mind about me. You need to pick, who who am I? What's going on here? Make a choice. Am I a good tree bearing good fruit? Or am I a bad tree, an evil tree bearing evil fruit? Take a look at his works, he would. Take a look at my works. I set a man free. I healed him. He can now see. He was blind, and now he can speak. Which, by the way, if he spoke instantaneously, which I believe he did, that's a miracle in itself, because how long does it take a child to learn to speak? And all of a sudden, now he has speech. He's able to speak. He's able to see and speak again. Essentially, he's saying, you need to make up your mind. And he says this, if I'm doing good works, it's by God's power. But if the works are evil, it's by Satan's power. It's not possible to have the good works by the power of Satan. He just wouldn't do that. That's a divided house. Satan doesn't, isn't interested in doing anything good. Let me walk you through his logic here. Jesus knew what the Pharisees believed about sickness and illness. Okay? The Pharisees believed that sickness and illness and death were a result of sin. In other words, you got sick, you'd done something wrong, you were being punished by God. They believed that. You got ill, either you, you or your family had done something wrong, you were being punished by God. So, they took, he, so Jesus takes their belief that said sickness and illness comes from sin in somebody's life, either yours or in your family. And then, and, and then we can also say, well, what do they believe about casting out demons? Well, that obviously came from Satan. They would say that. So we've got sin and Satan bringing bad things in people's lives. So Jesus calls him out. He says, look, I've healed the sick. The lame are now walking. I've cast out the demons. The things you're saying as are a result of sin, I've solved those problems. I've taken away those things. I've done it. This is my fruit. I have power over the things you're saying are caused by sin. I have power over that. I've cured every single person. I haven't run into a person. Oh, I can't handle that one. Oh, that, not, not that demon guy. He's too, that's too much for me. I've healed them all. I've cured them all. I have power over that. What kind of fruit is he bearing? The obvious answer was good fruit. How could good fruit come from Satan? It can't. Once again, Jesus kind of backed him into a corner. He had him stumped again. He had him, he had him confused. You know what he did? He exposed their hard hearts. He, he, he exposed their hearts. You, you can't say that what he's doing is bad. And if you're saying it's good, it's got to come from something good, not something bad. If they say his works are good, but his power is evil, that makes no sense at all. It's, that, that's back to the divided house thing. If they say his works are good, then Jesus must be good. And since Jesus' works were greater than theirs or their followers, they had no basis to say they were evil. He had done nothing wrong. They, 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 couldn't, they couldn't accuse him of anything. So he must have been good. So let me explain to you real simply what I believe this area of Scripture is talking about. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What was it? What was, what's the, what was the thing that they were, how, how are they blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Because the, whole, because the Pharisees accused Jesus of doing, they, they accused him of his power coming from Satan. 
They took the work of the Holy Spirit and they said, that's not Christ. That's not, the, that's not God. That's Satan doing that work. They blasphemed. They, they rejected what he had did. This is the supreme and unforgivable sin. The Holy Spirit is testifying of its power through Jesus Christ in the healings and the casting out of demons. And they say, no, 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 that's not God. That's Satan. That's not, that's not God. That's Satan. And today when people take the works of Jesus and they disregard them, and they say, this book, it's, it's not real. It's just a bunch of fables. It's a bunch of stories. They're doing the same thing they were doing. The only difference is they were witnessing it firsthand. When people do it today, they're, they're blaspheming the Holy Spirit as well when they reject the testimony of the Holy Spirit about Jesus Christ. Well, after backing them in a corner, did you catch what Jesus called them? What did he call them? Brood of vipers. What's a viper? It's a snake. With these words, he's calling them sons of snakes. Remember back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve? What was the little animal that came and got Eve to eat of the fruit? It was a snake. He says, you're associated with the serpent and not the Savior. You are the ones associated with the snakes. You are the ones that are evil. I'm not evil. You are. You brood of vipers. I'm the Savior. You're associated with the serpents. And look what he asks them there in verse 34. He says, how can you, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. An evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. Now the Old Testament clearly recognizes the evil heart of man. It's certainly there throughout the scriptures. From the time of Adam's sin, mankind was characterized by, by evil, by hatred, by corruption, by murder, by lying, by envy. It's, it's all there. Other forms of wickedness. David knew that he had inherited a sinful nature from the time he was conceived in his mother's womb. He wrote it in Psalm 51. Jeremiah said this. He said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. And when the Pharisees said, Jesus, they accused him of casting out demons, of his power to heal, of coming from Satan. They revealed their hard hearts. They weren't even able to take what was good and ascribe it to God. They had to ascribe it to Satan instead. Just like our words reveal our hearts. Did you know that? What you say reveals what's inside of you. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Say, wait a minute, that's kind of scary. That's really scary. At certain times, we can all say things we might regret. If you go home and you go to hammer a nail and you hit your thumb with the nail and you say something that you shouldn't say, it doesn't mean that you're not saved. But if we could go back, and we could go back, let's just say a week or perhaps a month, and we took everything that you said day in and day out, and we put it all together we'd be able to see your true nature by it. That's what the scripture's teaching us. What comes out of your mouth is a reflection of what's inside of your heart. I don't know about you, but there's a distinct difference between the things I said before I was saved and the things I would say after I'm saved. There's a difference there. Not that I'm perfect or not that I've achieved or not that I, I never make a mistake, but if you take the totality of my mouth and what comes out of it, it's changed dramatically. The things I used to say, and I'm not just talking about cuss words. I'm talking about attitudes coming out of my mouth, uh, all kinds of things coming out. It's changed dramatically. 
I hope yours has too. Let me see if I can say it to you another way. What we say on the outside is a picture of what we are on the inside. That's what this is teaching. What we say on the outside. Now, that goes with what I say in church, what I say at home, what I say at work, what I say around women or the opposite sex. How, do, do I speak the same around everybody or do I have certain language that I use around certain people? You see, who we, what we say is what he's saying is inside of our hearts. The psalmist would write, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. You see, one of the glorious things about being born again is that God performs a heart transplant. He gives you a new heart. He changes you. He changes your heart. He gives us a new heart, a clean heart. When we believe on Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit changes our hearts from sin-focused to God-focused. Do you have that picture in your life where your life changed? Where you realize whether you were 8 years old or 10 years old to where I'm not interested in doing those things. And if I do happen to slip there, man, I'm convicted. I can't stay there. I know I'm dirty. I need to get repentant and get back with the Lord. Your heart changes. We don't become perfect because we still have our sinful flesh. And we still have the freedom to choose whether we want to obey it or not, don't we? We all know that. You can all go home tonight and choose to obey your flesh and do something sinful. Or you can tell your flesh no and do something, you know, that's righteous. Something that will draw you closer to the Lord. We have that choice. However, when Jesus died for us on the cross, he broke. He broke the power of the sin that controls us. When we believe that sin is broken, receiving him as our Savior gives us access to God and his power over sin. We no longer have to do the things that we once did. We have the ability to say, no, I'm not going to do that. He gives us a power to transform our hearts from sin-hardened hearts to Christ-softened hearts. And then our heart becomes pliable. And then when he begins to speak into our heart and he begins to change us little by little, moment by moment hopefully the things that you would say last year as a christian are different than things you would even speak this year as a christian hopefully as you grow closer to the lord you're becoming more sensitive to sin and not less sensitive to sin that's the way that it's supposed to be in other words what he's saying is what comes out of your mouth is the evidence of what's in your heart so it leads us with the question what's really in our hearts is there the blood of Christ or do we really receive it? And if something comes out of our ha- mouth, of you, is, is it no big deal? Can, can you just put someone down? Can you gossip about someone? Can you talk about someone? Can you curse someone? Can you just, does it just flow off your lips like there's no problem? Jesus would say there's a problem. There's a big problem because that's what's in your heart. You see, the heart is the seat of the emotions. We don't, it, it, it's, it's where, it, it's what's inside of us. It, it just wants to come out sometimes. And I'm not talking about just, I've got a good filter in place. You see, if it's coming to your thoughts, it's still there. There should be a place as we mature with Christ that we realize, I'm not going to speak that way. I'm not going to say that way. We should begin to get convicted of those things. Sometimes we say things to our husbands or our wives that we have to go back and say, I'm sorry forgive me. And we have to go to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me. I shouldn't have said that. Sometimes we say things about other people that we should go to them and say, I'm sorry. I I, I didn't mean that that way. Or maybe I did mean it that way, but I realized I was wrong in saying that. You see, that's what happens sometimes. You see, the wonderful thing about the blood of Christ is it covers all of our failures. 
It covers all of our sins, which makes it so glorious. Now look at verse 36, what he says. He says, but I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. He's speaking to the Pharisees here. In order to find man guilty of sin, if, we wanted to, if, if, if I wanted to convict you of sin, I could probably do it on your words alone, couldn't I? Just go back over your life. I don't even need to look at anything you've done. I'm just going to look at what you've said. And you would stand before me guilty, and I would stand before you guilty in the same way. Just looking at what we said. I could probably do it, and you could probably do it to me on just the words we've said since we became a Christian. You see, it's important what Jesus is teaching here. He's telling the Pharisees that someday what you say is you're going to stand in judgment for it. You see, the person who refuses to forgive, it's going to come out in their words, isn't it? How long do you have to talk to somebody before you realize they're harboring unforgiveness? Not very long. The person who harbors resentment or, or ill will, it's only a matter of time. They may not express it at first, but the minute you get to know them a little closer, here it comes. You'll find out what, what, what it is they're holding in. It's coming out. The person who harbor, harbors lustful thoughts, they're going to speak about it, maybe not in front of everybody, but around certain people they're going to speak about it. Perhaps they're by themselves talking, talking to themselves about it. Who knows? But they're going to, it's going to come out in their words. But the person who is genuinely loving, the person who is kind and considerate, you know what? All of those come out as well, too. You want a report card on how you're doing? See how you're talking. Play your voice back to yourself. See, what's, see what you're saying. And I would suggest that you don't do it publicly. You go and say, what am I saying when I don't think anyone will hear? Around people that I don't think really care. Am I the same person around everybody? You see, the person who has the promise of eternity will express that hope in words also. What we believe is going to come out of our mouth. Isn't it true of us? Who we are on the inside will be heard loud and clear from the words we speak. Some of you might be wondering, I don't know if I'm even saved. My, my mouth isn't so good sometimes. I don't know, I'm in trouble here, Rob. You better stop, or you better, this better turn around real quick. Am I saved? I don't know, that's between you and the Lord. That's between you and him. I can't declare someone saved or unsaved. All I can teach you is what the scripture says, and it says what comes out of your mouth is what's in your heart. And I can tell you that if what's in your heart needs to be changed, the Lord will change it if you'll let him. If you'll say, Lord, forgive me, change me, give me a new heart, I need to be changed, he will. He'll change you. It might not be moment instantaneously, or it might be. It's up that, yeah, depending on how, he may want you to work at it for a while. It may take some time and some effort, and you may slip up. Okay, that happens. He goes, that's okay, I got grace for that. But he'll begin to change what's coming out of your mouth because he's changing what's in your heart. It's not just putting a filter over so you learn to control what you say. Because I'm going to control what's inside your heart, which will control what you think, which will control what comes out of your mouth, how it all works together. You see, the New Testament clearly teaches there's only one way of salvation, and it's through God's grace, working alongside of man's faith. God provided a way, but we must accept and believe what Christ has done on the cross. And here, Jesus' point is, it's not that, that, that words are the basis of our salvation or our condemnation. Your, your words aren't, aren't what condemn you or what save you, but they are reliable evidence of the reality of our salvation. That's what he's saying. 
In other words, yes, I could be condemned in my words, but, what they, what, but I, uh, my words are, are going to be evidence of, of that I am saved. It, it, when I get saved, when you get saved, your words are going to begin to change. There should be a constant changing, and you should continually grow. Matter of fact, if you're not growing close to the Lord, you're growing further apart. There really is no standing still. You can't do that for very long. Maybe you've, maybe you've experienced that in life. You're growing closer, you're growing closer, and then you kind of slip back a little bit. You ever experienced that? You go, I'm, I'm just kind of distant. You're, you're not really, you're not neutral. You're slipping back. How far will you let yourself go? Not that we don't have dry seasons, but how far will I let myself slip back before I begin to pull close to him? Listen carefully. You have all of Jesus that you want. All of him. You have all of the Holy Spirit that you want. He's not holding back in any area of your life. The only thing that holds him back is me and is you. And we say, nah, I don't want to go that far, Lord. I don't know that I want to do that. The speech of a redeemed person will be different because it comes from his or her renewed heart. It changes. You, you change when that happens. Now, I thought, I, I, my mind kind of works crazy sometimes. As I thought about everything we say, you know, if we're going to be, if we could be, if man could be condemned on what he said, I wondered, is, is, there, is, there, is that preserved somewhere? So then I, I kind of got off on a little tangent today. I looked up sound waves. And what happens to sound waves? Because when, I, when, I, when my vocal cords go and you hear the sound wave, it goes to your ears, but it keeps going. Does it, does it ever really end? And depending on who you ask, what I, a couple things I read, some people said, yes, it ends. Other people said, well, it doesn't really end. It just becomes unmeasurable. Or it becomes blending in with the sound of our surroundings. So I began to wonder, what if somebody had a device that could take those sound waves because they never really go away and bring them back so that we could hear them. And we could actually play back everything that was ever said throughout, by every person throughout history. Wow, that'd be pretty amazing. It'd be pretty scary, wouldn't it? If everything you said could be played back before you. But wouldn't it also be great? Because you could sit and hear Jesus teach the Sermon on the Mount as he sat on that hillside. We could sit and hear all kinds of things that were wonderful but we'd also hear some things that weren't so great. Is it possible? I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm asking the question. I'm not a scientist. Is it possible that someday in the future, perhaps, the, perhaps at the white throne judgment, all of a sudden when someone says, Lord, I'm not guilty, he just hits play. And all of a sudden everything they've said comes back just on their voice alone. Could it be captured with the right equipment? Well, we know all things are possible with God. Perhaps it is possible. Perhaps it is. Like I said, on one hand, it's scary technology. On the other hand, how cool would it be to hear the voice of a loved one that has already gone on to be with the Lord? How cool would that be to be able to hear someone one more time? Or to be able to hear your favorite musician that has passed and, and hear an original performance from years ago? Or whatever it is. What, what amazing that would be. But yet how scary it could be that our words are preserved forever. You think your internet browser is not safe? You think that history can be deleted? What if our words really are preserved forever and they can be there for us? I'm not saying it's scientifically possible. I really don't know. But what I do know, it's certainly possible for the author of the universe to do anything that he wants. And if he says man could be condemned by his words, I believe that he's just and he could do just that if he needed to. After listening to Jesus the Pharisees, they knew exactly what he was saying. 
They knew that he was calling them to make a decision about who he was. And look what they ask him in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Do you think they're really interested in seeing a sign? I mean, after all, they just saw a demon-possessed man set free. They just saw Jesus heal his illnesses. What What more do they really want? And by this time, the hardness of their heart had already developed because back in verse 14, we're told they were plotting against him and how they might destroy him. By the way, if you're planning your life and you are planning sin, it is not from God. If if you find yourself, I'm thinking about how I can destroy my boss, that's that's not from God. If you're thinking about, I need to wreck this person's life, God is not in that. Right away you should realize, wait a minute, this is not the right place. They're plotting how they might destroy him because he's coming against them. Essentially, with this question, they're asking Jesus, they're saying, hey, will you prove to us that you're the Messiah? Prove it. Prove the Messiah. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us, but I wonder what kind of sign they asked for. Maybe they said, all right, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, make the sun go dark. Maybe they said, all right, Jesus, it's a sunny day. If you're the Messiah, make it rain now. Maybe they were testing him in that way. I don't know. I don't, we're not told what they said. But they want him to prove. Jesus had already demonstrated his power by forgiving sin of the lame man. He'd healed the sick. He'd cast out demons. He's controlled the weather on the Sea of Galilee. Truth be told, even if Jesus did whatever they asked him, they wouldn't have believed him. They'd already hardened their heart against him. They weren't interested. They'd already rejected the testimony of the Holy Spirit right before them. But listen how he responds to their request, verse 39. But he answered, he said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Essentially, Jesus says, I'm not going to do what you want me to do, but I'll give you a sign. In fact, I'll make you a promise. Just like Jonah. You know the prophet Jonah. You've read the story. You guys have all taught the story. You know who Jonah is. Three days, three nights in the belly of the fish, the son of man, referring to himself, he said, I'll spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now today we know what that means. Because we have the rest of the story written out for us. They didn't have the rest of the story. They didn't understand what that meant at that time. But they should have figured it out. When they said he's risen, they should have said, "Uh uh-oh. They knew it because the scripture tells us that they went to the the, the chief priests, went to the Roman guards because he said he was going to rise again on the third day. They knew that he had said that. They understood what he meant. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you one final sign. 
I'm going to give you one final chance. But he knew that even then they wouldn't believe. Although some of them did, don't forget. Some of the Pharisees did believe. Jesus, he went on to warn them. He said, Nineveh, that heathen Gentile nation, as he stands before the religious leaders, the holy people of the day, he says, Nineveh, that heathen Gentile nation, they're going to rise up in judgment against you. That would, they were, they were, this is insulting to them. This is flabbergasting to them. They can't believe he would say something like that. Why? Why are they going to rise up in judgment against us? Because they repented at the preaching of the Jewish prophet Jonah. Because Jonah came and told them about me and they repented from their ways. Now I am standing before you and you are failing to repent. Instead, you're trying to figure out how you can condemn me. Jesus claimed to be greater than Jonah but he also claimed to be greater than Solomon. Greater than Solomon when he said, indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Can you imagine somebody saying that to a devout Jewish person or a Hebrew person? Solomon was the son of David. Solomon was the richest and wisest king that Israel has ever had. And Jesus stands before him and goes, I'm greater than him. Greater than him. Either he was absolutely nuts or he was living up to what he said. And they had nothing to disprove him. Because what Jesus was doing, Solomon never did. What he was performing, Solomon could never do. Either Jesus was the Messiah, or he was one crazy man, one lying lunatic, whatever you want to call him. Either he was who he says he was, or he was one fruit loop in outer space that we should have disregarded a long time ago. There really is no middle ground on who he was. Not according to the scriptures. The queen of the south, that's the queen of Sheba, she came to hear Solomon. And Jesus says to them that today, as I stand in your presence, you're rejecting one greater than Solomon. Wow. But he doesn't fail to warn them of the consequence of their rejection. Look at verse 43. He said, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest, and he finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put into order. Then he goes and he takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. Some people teach this area that if a, whole, if, a, if a demon is cast out and Jesus is not received by the person, more demons will come back in. That's certainly possible. But what Jesus is doing here, he's pointing out the difference between reformation and regeneration. Many times in life, people get tired of sin, and they cleanse themselves from it. They get tired of their addiction. They get tired of this, or they get tired. I'm not doing that anymore. It brings too much hurt and pain in my life. Fine, they quit it. But that doesn't mean they're saved just because they stopped it. They clean up their act. They reform. They strive to be moral or good people. But it's the same hard heart that's inside of them. It's the same thing inside of them. He's warning the nation of Israel at this time. You see, the nation Israel was an adulterous generation who forsook the Lord. And what happened to them? They found themselves in captivity, both Assyrian and both Babylonian captivity. Eventually the Lord released them and he brought them back to the land. And as a result, what is going on now, the Pharisees, they're trying, to be, they're trying not to be idol worshipers. They're trying to be separate from the rest of the world, but they're doing it in a way where they're separating themselves from everybody and they're not following God's way. They're essentially designing their own system. Now, you can, you can kind of look at it this way. Israel at this time, they're in the midst of a, 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 a pharisaical revival. 
the Pharisees are the one leading the countries and they want everyone to be like them. They'd rejected idols, but the nation had fallen in love with legalism. It was all about legalism. It wasn't about the Lord Jesus Christ. They'd mistaken morality for spirituality. Think about that. It was about me presenting myself as moral. It was about me, the way I looked on the outside, but there really was no spirituality. The Son of Man is standing before them. They don't even know who he is. But yet, if you were to evaluate their life, you would say, that's a spiritual person. They've really got it all together. They've got the phylacteries on. They've got the right clothes on. They do the right things. They say the right things. They follow the law. They don't work on the Sabbath. They, they do everything they're supposed to do. Yes, they're moral. But there is no spirituality. There is no relationship with God. That's where they're missing. They're missing that. And he's warning. He's saying, so if you clean up the house, which is what you've done, but you don't receive life and love of God, you're still empty. It's just going to be something else that sneaks in. In other words, you cleaned up the house. You're not idol worship. Now you're worshiping religion. You're still worshiping a false god. It's become your religion that they were worshiping. It's come, it's come back worse. Now it has the, at least when you worship idols, everyone knew you were worshiping false gods. Now it looks like you're worshiping the real God. But in, in a sense, you're just worship, worshiping this religion. You've become legalist. You see, true spirituality involves more than just emptying out. It requires an opening up. It requires a taking in. It's not just cleaning up my life. The Pharisees, the nation Israel, they'd emptied themselves out of idols, but they hadn't taken in the things of God. They thought they had, but they had no relationship with God. It was simply a set of rules that they were living by. True spirituality. More than emptying out. It requires an opening up, a filling up, receiving the Holy Spirit. You see, reform is not enough. Anybody can be reformed. You don't have to be a Christian to be reformed. You can change your habits. You can change your ways. That, that's not enough. We need regeneration. We need a new heart placed in us. We need a new life. We need true transformation. And that requires more than just cutting out a few sins and adding a few rituals to our lives. It requires us forming a relationship with our Creator. And we do that through the study of His Word as we get to know Him. Do you know the difference? I am certain that today, not here, not in this church, I know it's not here, but in many churches throughout the, our country and throughout the world, there are people who are stuck in this same kind of legalism. It's based on what they look like on the outside. It's based on what they act. They're very spiritual in appearance, but there's nothing on the inside. They're empty. They're missing it. They don't have that relationship with the Lord. They're not walking in obedience like they should be. They're simply trying to walk in step with the set of laws. Salvation is not cleaning out and cleaning up. It's filling up with the Holy Spirit. It's filling up with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit coming into my life. It's me accepting the testimony of the Holy Spirit on who Jesus is. And as this is all going on, Jesus, is, as he's warning the Pharisees, it's great. His mom comes looking for him. His family comes looking for him. Look what it says in verse 46. He says, while he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward the disciples and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven 
is my brother and sister and mother. It seems that Jesus' family did not have any sort of special privilege with them. They come looking for him. Hey, where's he at? They said, your mom, your, your family's outside. This is my family. Those that do the will of my father, that's my family. Mary was a wonderful example of an ordinary woman used by God to do extraordinary things. But here in this passage, she's on the same ground, same level ground. She's not any higher than anybody else, like some people would have us believe. It also stands the reason in this passage that Jesus had brothers. That's what it says. One commentator explained it this way. He said this. He said, The most natural way to understand the word brothers is that the term refers to sons of Mary and Joseph and thus to brothers of Jesus on his mother's side. Efforts to make brothers mean something else are nothing less than far-fetched exegesis in support of dogma, that's doctrine, that originated much later than the New Testament. So it was clear, he had a family, he had mothers and brothers. But I want you to see something. He's contrasting two groups of people. The Pharisees he refers to as a wicked generation. And now all of a sudden he refers to those who are his brothers and sisters and family. There's two different places. Which group would you fall in? Which group would you fall in? Are you in the wicked generation or are you in the mother and brother and family? There's not much wiggle room there, is there? He makes it pretty clear. Well, how do I know which one I'm in? Well, I know where I want to be. It tells you right there in verse 50. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Don't ever forget how important your church spiritual family is. And I'm not just talking about our church. I'm talking about Christians, the Christian community. Don't ever forget, we might have differences in some of our beliefs, and that's okay. Don't, unless, unless there are doctrinal differences that, that make a huge difference on salvation, don't forget the bonding that takes place in a spiritual family. For some people, they have no other family. For some people, they've been forsaken by their family. The only family they have is the church family. But is there a desire in your hearts to do the will of the Father? Is there a desire to listen, to do the will, fulfilling what he calls us to do? Believing on Jesus Christ, obeying the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Is there a conviction that says, you know what, the things that come out of my mouth might need to change. And I not, not change because I want to follow a set of rules, but change because I need a change in my heart. I need a heart transplant. I need, a, I need my heart changed. The psalmist would also write, search my heart, O Lord, and see if there's any wicked way found in me. Lord, we have to have that same heart. Lord, search us. Is there something wicked inside of us? Is there something that needs to change? And when you do that, and he puts his finger, he says, yep, there is, right here. I want you to change it. Then you have to do the will of the Father. Then you have to walk in obedience and do what he asks you to do. You have to change it. You have to lay it down, maybe. See, that's the choice, that, that's the part that we have. We talked more about that last Sunday. It, it all kind of works together here. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and your scriptures. Lord Jesus certainly did not go easy on the Pharisees, but yet he told them, I believe in love. He shared the truth with them. They wanted a sign. He promised to give them a sign. And, he, and we know through history that he held up his end of that deal. 
He gave them a sign. He rose on the third day. Lord, he also told us this evening that what comes out of our mouth is a good indicator, a reliable indicator of what's in our hearts. Lord, if there's something in our heart that needs to change, if there's unforgiveness or bitterness or hatred or jealousy or envy or, or what lust or whatever it is, Lord, if that needs to come out tonight, would you just minister to us? Would you call us to a repentance? May we respond and turn away from those things, leaving them at the cross. Lord, we thank you that you're a God of mercy and a God of grace, but yet a God of truth, and you're just. Lord, we couldn't be righteous except by your blood, for our flesh fails day in and day out. But our spirit strives and yearns to be more like you. Lord, may we see you at work this week in our life. May we see a change in our speech, indicating our heart becoming more soft and more pliable. May we walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.